Someone once said, don't try and be a great man, just be a man. That's rhetorical nonsense. Hello, my friends. Uh, welcome to the podcast of the nerd. I'm Ian. Uh, and I'm on the wrong outline. Ah, getting better while we get worse. Happy Monday. I hope you're doing well. You're looking good. Uh, welcome to the podcast of the nerd, the podcast where I pick a couple of topics to ramble about each and every Monday, whatever floats my van that particular week. Uh, today on the podcast, Saturday, Adventure of the Nerd, Fish and Fast Cars, Proca Procrastination versus Laziness, Fear of Failure, and Continuing Our Weekly Fanfic Reading. I'm skipping goal reporting for today because I thought that would get boring and... Um, uh, to do it on a weekly basis, but th some things are going well, some things are a struggle. Uh, I talked to Lonnie about recording a first-time novelist coaching session for my write-a-novel-this-year goal, and she's down. We may do a quarterly check-in to kind of cover the entire process and end with self-publishing on Amazon, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, that'll be sometime in early February. So... Adventures of the Nerdy Sitting. Uh, this is where I use a random number generator to pick a page in my Lonely Planet Colorado guide, and wherever it lands, I go there on a Saturday and document the trip on Instagram.com slash Passion of the Nerd. I have, so I've been running a lot. One of the goals that, this might be kind of gross, uh, one of the goals on the list is uh, was health and fitness. We're doing these whoop strap things. And um, I do better when I gamify anything. I, I want... Um, I wish... I, I, I mean, I'm just for the gamification of everything. And one of the ways that I do that is to structure a, a kind of... Um, I, I, you know, get fit is too broad. So specifically, I signed up for the uh, Colorado Boulder Boulder 10K in May, uh, and I'm doing a weekly training routine. And what's funny is whenever I take a long gap between, uh, by the way, this is the, the podcast of tangents, and this is definitely one of them. Whenever I do a uh, running training thing, I'm always astonished by... Um, how much I love running. You know, I, I, I'm one of those... I, I hate running on a treadmill. It's so boring. I have to do the born identity. Running routine if I'm going to run on a treadmill. But running outside, I love. It's great. But I also um, have big old flippers for feet, which are prone to kind of rubbing on the sides of uh, the shoe. And I have these little separators for my feet to keep bad things from happening. And the cat thinks these separators are the coolest toy ever. I catch her sprinting around with them in her mouth. Yes, I know, it's disgusting. I apologize. Adventures of the Nerd. Random uh, number generator. Pick a place to go. And um, I share the trip on Instagram.com slash Passion of the Nerd. Now, we landed on Denver... I live in Colorado and uh, landed on Denver. The book divides Denver up into neighborhoods. And uh, the neighborhood specifically that, that I landed on was Platte River Valley. So um, the options for things to do on a Saturday were two parks. It, it, it's the wintertime. Uh, the Children's Museum. <laughs> Which, you know, maybe I could go and find some single mothers to romance, but I thought it might be better if I had the van first so that they can see I'm a, you know, a family man. Might write uh, free candy on the side. Free candy? He really loves kids. That's a guy I want to hang out with. I'm kidding. That's not a good joke. Uh, the Aquarium, the Fernie Museum of Transportation. Um, so I ended up going to the Aquarium and the Fernie Museum so the aquarium, uh, I've only ever been to one before. It's the one in San Francisco, which you would think would be excellent. 
It was not. Uh, 30 minutes in line, $22 for a ticket. 90 minutes uh, wait for the restaurant. I had mozzarella sticks, seafood pasta. It was $40. That was before I saw a fish. Um, once you start going around, it does make some kind of sense. And if you're watching the visual version of this, let me get some fish up for you. The money is on display. I'll say that. At least it's... it it It's... They're not... They're gouging you, but it's not... Um, but the money that they're taking from you appears every place. It, it was a nice collection. Um, it's very well maintained. There's lots of good exhibits for kids. There were a lot of kids, of course. Um, but I did see a lot of just, you know... 20-something couples walking around together taking pictures. Just people looking for a day out, which was nice. Um, for some reason, they have a tiger enclosure, which I, I don't really un understand. But it was it was amazing. It was very cool. It was um, wide open inside in three stories. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I talked about uh, on... Instagram was just, I definitely, the anxiety was there. I, I don't, I, I don't like kids. I, the, I was shoulder to shoulder with people. You know, you're, you're having to wait to walk any place. Uh, I, I didn't try and get too close to the glass for a lot of things because, you know, there were kids there. I, I'm not going to elbow a tiny kid out of the way to get a good picture of a fish or a shark or, or whatever it is. So, it, it, it was okay. But the thing is, I kind of think that, you know, anxiety-triggering thing is part of the reason to be doing this, you know. For the last seven or eight years, I've I've lived a very solitary life. And it's nice, and I like it, but there are trade-offs to anything. And, you know, maybe this is like sticking my hand in a jar full of spiders. Immersion therapy... Uh, it's a weird thing to be an outgoing introvert, if that makes any sense. You know, I can have the conversation, you know, be around people, have a good time, and boy, do I like spending a lot of time alone. Too much. It's too easy for, for me to spend very long um, amounts of time alone. Next was the Fernie Museum of Transportation, which is this weird slightly haphazard collection of amazing old cars this was this this particular little bit of the trip was to me one of the reasons why i'm trying this experiment it's a place i never would have gone uh and i found kind of astonishing the collection of old machines from they had a 1903 oldsmobile on up through um i think it was a 2010 jaguar were were wonderful. They had uh, uh, lots of old trains, just a couple of planes. I I'm I'm a weird. I'm not. I wouldn't call myself a car nut, but um, I'm I I have a mild enough knowledge of it to find it very interesting. And growing up, this was kind of this was kind of fun. My dad was the king of the hobby. He got into Woodworking, model ship assembly, kite building, stained glass assembling, uh, oil painting, hunting. Even at one start, one point started building a biplane in the garage out of wood. And before I was born, he was restoring what he always said was his favorite car, which was a Jaguar XK120. And for the first time in my life at the Fernie Museum, there was a fully restored uh, XK120 there that I got to stand next to. And uh, I ended up sending him a bunch of pictures, and it was a lot of fun. All right. I'm loving Adventures of the Nerd. Uh, the nice thing is it's... It, it, I just love... I randomly choose the next thing that I'm going to watch a lot of times, you know. I hate that paralyzing. They say that, that there was an experiment done where the these people go into a store i can't remember the exact um nature of the experiment these people go into a store and when they're done they're given a one group is given a choice of awards or a, a choice of um presents to take 
one of, they can take one of three options. And another group gets one option as a bonus uh, when they leave the store. And at the end of the week, they measured uh, people's reported happiness with either the group that got the gift but could have picked something else versus um, the group who just got the gift. And the group who just got the gift always reported more happiness than the people who had a choice of what gift to have. And I feel like that phenomena um, plays out in many different areas in life. Uh, Obviously, I believe choice is, you know, the fundamental basis to a rich and meaningful life. But when it comes to uh, choosing a place to go on a Saturday or choosing uh, what I'm going to have for dinner, I kind of enjoy the the benefit of the random decision. Anyway, we're not doing a selection this week because we've got the Patreon on Saturday. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, procrastination. Staple of the community, Boris... Uh, defrosted robot posted a quote on the passionate nerds discord from an article by David Kane called procrastination is not laziness. Uh, and I want to read it here. It turns out procrastination is not typically a function of laziness, apathy, or worth work ethic as it is often regarded to be. It's a neurotic self-defense behavior that develops to protect a person's sense of self-worth. You see, procrastinators tend to be people who have, for whatever reason, developed to perceive an unusually strong association between their performance and their value as a person. This makes failure or criticism disproportionately painful, which leads naturally to hesitancy when it comes to the prospect of doing anything that reflects their ability. Which is pretty much everything. Alright, so... um. That's pretty spot on. I shared the quote on Twitter along with some personal thoughts, and there was enough interest that I thought I would bring it up here and kind of um, run through some of the things that I mentioned there. So, first of all, generally speaking, I was a terrible student. Uh, I did very well in stuff I cared about and poorly in everything else. Worst grade I ever got was a D in German. My dad hit the ceiling. So that pattern persisted into college, but the saving grace in college is you specialize. It's not all general education. And once I got into journalism and video editing, um, I was sort of saved from that pattern. But it did persist into later life. And, (coughs) excuse me. Breathe, Ian. (sighs) Um, Sophomore year in high school... I transferred out of an English class I was doing poorly in with a teacher who was a bit of a stickler um, to another one that liked me and let me slide on assignments here and there. And uh, the last day in school, I ran into the stickler in the hallway, and he asked me what had happened. Um, I just stopped coming to his class one day from his end, and I told him I'd transferred into another. (coughs) And he stood there in the hallway, looked at me for a minute, and then said, You know, when you get older, you're going to be very liked. People are going to look at you and say, Man, Ian's great, isn't he? I just wish he could do the work. You're never going to succeed at a job because you just won't do the work. And... At various points in my life, after different jobs at different companies where I might have struggled for one reason or another, those words kept coming back to me. And I always thought the problem was, because people had said this to me over and over again, that I was lazy. I was lazy. I just didn't try hard enough. I watched TV. I was a lazy underachiever. And I believed I procrastinated because I was lazy. And here is the most frustrating, tooth-grinding, angering thing about what Mr. Stickler said to me. He ended up being bang on for a while. I mean, I have no idea why you say something like that to a 15-year-old kid. Why you forecast a child's life like that. It seems to me a little evil. 
But regardless, I kept replicating Mr. Stickler's pattern in job after job. There were exceptions, but for the most part, um, I ended up being a team member at a lot of places that people loved because I could make them laugh and I lightened the mood. But I was pretty far down the list of choices when they wanted dependable work. And when I was a teenager, <clears throat> I could transfer responsibility for the problem onto other people. It was the school's fault. I was unhappy at home and couldn't be expected to get good grades under those circumstances. School didn't matter. Real life would matter. And as an adult, where real life mattered, this, the same thing continued to happen. And I reached a point where there was no other place to put the responsibility besides myself. I got tired of being a poor employee and said, all right, why is this happening? What's the issue? Um, in school, I kicked butt at things I was good at. Does that mean that the only jobs I'm going to be able to work in my life are the ones that tickle my own narcissistic pleasure centers? Because that severely limits my options. Am I so lazy that the only things I'm ever going to be able to get done are the ones I find so fun I ignore the fact that they're work? <clears throat> I've heard this expressed also in other forms as um, people saying they've lo they lost their passion for something and just couldn't do something anymore. And and while I think that's that's a phenomena that can happen, I also uh, think that that some people. Uh, I, I've talked about this in a different video. Some people believe it, it, the old fallacy that um, find something you're passionate about and you'll never work a day in your life, which is complete nonsense. Um, the, I mean, the, these things are all kind of related. Anyway, um, I have this friend, Toby. Toby is fantastic, and I love her. She is the most kick-ass, get-things-done project manager person I've ever met in my life. She has something to do, and she does it. Whereas I, uh, at times, wait for the stars to align. So what's the difference? Well, the first thing I came to understand, as I started picking these things apart, um, as I started thinking about my ways of thinking, is that I'm not actually lazy. I'm far too anxious and neurotic to be lazy. Laziness is relaxing. I love a lazy Sunday, laying on the couch with a glass of wine, watching Buffy. That is wonderful. When I have something that I've decided I need to do, but I am not doing it, it is a state of exponentially mounting misery. Procrastination is torture. Um, it's anti-fun. Procrastination for me was always just plain old fear of failing. Um, the fear doesn't even have to be a sure thing. In fact, it might be more potent if it isn't. I wasn't sure I was going to fail the math test. But what if I'm not actually good enough to do well? The unknown is way scarier than, than a sure thing. You know, when, when something is a sure thing, you have nothing to lose. So... Why not? Now, um, what am I on about and for what reason? Here's why I think this is important, because you can't fix the actual problem until you understand what the problem actually is. When I was younger and everyone, including me, thought I was just lazy, the, the, the answers were try harder, work harder, put more time in. And I would sit and stare at a pile of books and be unable to move past the first page. It's very easy when telling someone who is struggling with anxiety to just work harder. It's very easy for them to turn that into yet another thing to be afraid of. What if I'm just not capable of doing this? What if I'm the one... What if I... Uh, I, uh, what if I was the one who would have been eaten by a bear back in the day? What if uh, I'm I'm? Uh, what if there is? What if the flaw is not fixable? Um, entering middle age, when I run into the problem, 
And now that I know what the problem actually is, I ask myself, what am I actually afraid of and why? And what other possibilities are there than the imagined catastrophe I've attached myself as though it's for surety? Now, as an adult, I do things deliberately for the purposes of eroding my own fear of failure. Public speaking, uh, the channel was one of those things. The podcast, this, talking to you now, is one of those things. Saturday Adventures, out among actual mouth breathers, is one of those things. I erode my fear of failure, one choice, one decision, one creation after another. On Twitter, um, that spastic chick asked me, do you have any advice on how you managed that, on something you'd recommend trying to see if it works? Because, yeah, I know it's fear. I've been aware for a while. I think many of us are, but it's the, so how do you combat the fear, disassociate your self-worth? Well, here's the thing. <clears throat> First of all, I think it's a mistake to try and combat fear. Generally speaking, I don't think for... Uh, and everything I say is relative to me alone. I don't... Um, the, you know, I, uh, I, no, I, I, I don't have a grasp of anything other than my own personal experiences. So that said, I think the more that I um, try and argue against a fear, the more I sort of use aphorisms or or um, affirmations. Uh, no, I'm 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 good enough. I've written good things. This will be good. The more it sort of validates and empowers the fear, because the fear is worth combating in that regard. So, um, I don't try and do that. If, <coughs> excuse me, if I'm paralyzed because something I'm writing is going to suck, there, there's a few things here. I, I, I offered up on Twitter and a couple more and I wanted to elaborate on. If I'm paralyzed because something I'm writing is going to suck, the actual source of the fear often isn't that story. But some past event in my life that generated that sense of inadequacy. And what I'm doing is putting the past in the future, when really there is no guaranteed outcome. So sometimes it's helpful for me to tackle that mental grout. Now here's the thing. Mr. Stickler was recognizing a pattern, right? Mr. Stickler saw a pattern that was there to be recognized. He just came to the wrong conclusion. Uh, appropriateness of saying that to a 15-year-old aside. So uh, me sort of carrying that with and, and worrying about whether or not he's right and trying to prove him wrong and all of that is, is, is just kind of a waste of time. Um, so that's sort of what I was, I was going for with that. Second... I always try and refocus on larger projects I've set for myself. If I get bogged down in a particular script or passage of a script or a particular episode topic, that becomes the only thing I'm capable of seeing, the sum total of my perspective. And that's when the voices creep in. You know the voices. They're going to hate this. I'm wrong about this point. This video is crap. My bubble becomes just that tiny moment and space and time. So I keep big goals to drive the small ones. Um, I came to a point in my life where I realized I was someone who was healthier when they were making things. And for me, my fullest expression comes from making videos. <clears throat> but I hadn't made a video in years and hated the stuff that I was making. So I took on... The Buffy Guide, a video episode guide uh, for a show with hundreds of episodes. And when I get bogged down in sort of the granular or the microscopic, I try and refocus on that project entire. It makes this thing, uh, which looks like a chasm in the moment that I have to jump across, look like seams in the concrete. That paragraph, that passage doesn't have to be perfect. It's a pebble in the enormous structure that I'm trying to erect. Another tactic 
I use for neutralizing fear um, is I focus mostly on just making things for me. Writing something that speaks to me. Editing a video that moves me. Making a joke. Coming up with a joke that makes me laugh. I am the only audience member whose tastes I completely understand and grasp. And if I manage to do that, whoever watches this video or whoever listens to this podcast or what have you, it's a success. Conversely, if I'm not managing to entertain myself or to move myself or to make myself laugh, I know I'm missing something. I can tidy things up, spend more time marinating on the material, um, but writing for someone else makes that all speculative and, again, invites the voices in. A lot of times, and with an audience, too, it's even, it's, it, 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 it's even you know, it can be even more troublesome. I, uh, we, we, you and I have been doing this long enough now together that I know and recognize certain voices in the com community, uh, people who disagree with me on one point or another. And sometimes when writing, I, I hear those voices in my head. You know, I've, I've given what is for me an inanimate comment on a YouTube page. So I don't know the actual people who are leaving those comments. But they come to life in my imagination when I sort of am procrastinating and let the doubt um, in. There was one other thing I wanted to say uh, in tandem with that. This is why I make notes. What was the thing that I wanted to say? Perhaps a bit of ice cold water. One sec. Oh, yeah, I remember. Wow, that worked. Ice cold water for the win. In tandem with that, one thing that I try never to do is I try never to make a perfect video. I try never to make a perfect script. My goal is to create a video that has a bit in it that I really love. Right? So, in the history of the channel, there may be... three videos that I really like, but there are many videos with sections that I really like. Uh, and when I can make that my focus, when I'm I'm doing a particular script and I know there's a bit in here that I love and I, I know that I'm going to love getting to that when I edit it, it creates a carrot through the stuff that I'm unsure of and allows me to move on knowing that the whole thing won't necessarily be perfect, but I'll be really happy with, you know, the end of the prodigal. Or, um, it's funny, I, I had I had relationships on the brain when I wrote the script for School Hard. And School Hard is one of the weirdest videos on the channel because it's one of the funniest episodes on the channel. Excuse me. But it has one of the... Most emo well, I don't know if it's one of the most emotional endings, but it has a very emotional ending at the end of it, and that was just because I was, um, I was grappling with some feelings about relationships, and and as ever, I used writing about Buffy as an opportunity to kind of sort through some things and and. Uh, uh, for my own personal catharsis. And that came out in that video. Which is, you know, there are videos with emotional endings that feel disingenuous, I think. Where it's like, okay, here the, there's a formula. There's obviously a formula. But that doesn't mean that a formula is a bad thing as long as the words are honest. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's sort of like haiku is a structure. Uh, uh, writing a haiku doesn't negate the value of the thing that you're writing. It's all about the words. And the fact that I have a formula where it's the introduction and then the um, opening credits and then a summary and then a brief review and then an analysis and then a conclusion. And often the conclusion has a sort of um, soft piece come in the background and I speak in a different way and all of that. There's a formula there. But as long as it's honest, it doesn't matter, right? In order to get through 
this the work in order to get the next video done and to sit down. You can't reinvent the wheel every time. You need something to go back to, something to work with. And um, I feel what's bizarre about Something Blue is where some videos, the formula was carrying words that maybe were not as honest uh, or 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 didn't have as much to them as they could. In Something Blue, I think it still works because it was honest. You know, it was the the connections to the show and sort of what I was feeling and what I was dealing with personally worked. So um, anyway, that, that, that sort of thing I, I think is of use when you're doing a projects of this kind is don't try and make everything perfect. You know, you can, I can make a scene perfect. I can make a couple of seconds perfect. And, and that to me is reward enough when the video is all done. So, um, and I lost my place. Last thing is, I think it's important to think about thinking. <clears throat> Most of the uh, the videos, all of the, that is very much about this. Um, that's this conversation we perpetually have. As much as we may deaden our fears through exposure, fear is inevitable. But we imbue our fears with power by fighting them, fixating on them, or focusing on them. If you can build the skill of just letting your own thoughts come and go without attaching to them or riding them, you know? Have you ever spent days worrying about something and then that thing comes and goes and you wonder, what the hell was I worried about? That's attaching to the thought. I do it all the time. I catastrophize. I put the fear behind the wheel and I ride along shotgun screaming in terror. But you can just notice the thought and let it go. And that gives you the chance to say, okay, what do I want to do next in this moment? If you can build up and master that skill, then you can actually be free to apply passion to whatever you choose. And there are lots of ways to build that muscle. <clears throat> but two of the ways that I... Um, do it is uh, through meditation and therapy. Um, meditation is just building the muscle of noticing thought but not attaching to it. You know, letting thoughts pass. Sort of uh, uh, that's where that 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 um, that thing I said in one of the videos comes from. Is you are not your thoughts, but the thing witnessing your thoughts inside your own head. Uh, and therapy, the benefit is simply to have an unbiased third party sitting there catching the thoughts that you are not behind the wheel for. Uh, and there's a lot of benefit in that. I think therapy, I, I'm a great proponent, proponent of therapy. I think absolutely anyone can benefit from therapy. The difference are the degrees. Some, uh, some people can benefit once a month. Other people maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But there is no point, I think, in anyone's life where sitting down and speaking with an unbiased third party and saying, hey, here's what I'm up to, you know, do you have any thoughts about this, is a bad thing. But here is the grain of salt warning for anything I say. I said a lot of this on Twitter and hilariously, a day or two later, realized that I was procrastinating on the No Place Like Home script. And when I thought about it, it was all of this usual stuff. I was just afraid that the thing I was going to make was going to be bad. Now, you know, and and when you get trapped in these sort of bubbles of perspective, it, it can be hard for other people to understand, you know, whether or not you have a body of work that suggests, okay, you're capable and good at this or uh, any of that, it doesn't matter. Because inside that little bubble of fear perspective, the only thing that you can see are, you know, the things the fear are allowing you to see. This season, I've started psyching myself out about the Buffy episodes. Um, the Angel episodes have been much more episodic. Each episode is super self-contained. Uh, with lots of spicy stuff to talk about. Um, you know, the abuse stuff from Untouched was very important to me. Uh, Are You Now or Have You Ever Been has tons of great things to get into. Um, 
And Buffy is kind of missing that in the first part of season one. With the exception of Buffy versus Dracula, most of the episodes have felt like this slice of life of Sunnydale. Very soapy. And I was afraid that because of that, the Buffy episode guides just aren't as good. Um, and I don't want to make something bad. So I started putting off picking up the script. And that's the cycle right there. So applying this, I started thinking about the arc entire. Season 5 has some of my favorite bits from all of Buffy. And how all of these early elements, including the Norman Rockwell slice of life... Um, its lead to stuff later in season five. I also remembered that the Buffy season five arc may open soft, but uh, look how Angel of the Angel season two arc closes. Guys, what's going to be the subtext to discuss when Lorne's head is in the basket or about Cordy's slinky bikini? Um... So I, I think I got enough perspective on the whole thing that I can just pick up the script uh, today after you and I are done talking, go for a run, and uh, sit down and get into it. So, look, all of this is just me. At the end of the day, there's not one single catch-all solution for disentangling us from our toxic Mr. Stickler or memories or bad habits. Sometimes I go all the way back to the nuclear option. When I'm really stuck, the nuclear option takes some form of this. You know what? I can overthink everything and find a million ways to doubt myself. And since I've been alone, I've really been thinking about that part of myself, and I've just come to realize that we're only here briefly. And while I'm here, I want to allow myself joy. So fuck it. All right. No Saturday Adventure of the Nerd, because this Saturday we're doing the Patreon Hangout discussion. 5 p.m. Saturday, 5 p.m. Mountain Time. I've given up trying to change that for other people, because I have uh, gotten it wrong too many times. Um, but this Saturday's... 5 p.m. Uh, Google Hangout discussion will be on the initiative and bachelor party. I guess there's some good Doyle stuff. I've also been doing some Twitch streaming. I think I've decided uh, this last week that I'm not going to stream to Twitch and YouTube, but just to Twitch and use YouTube as a backup for stream recordings. Currently on Twitch, I'm playing through uh, one of my favorite games, The Last of Us, every Monday and Thursday night, and um, discussing with uh, people what we're going to move on to after that. So if you're interested, there's a Twitch link in the show notes. And um, the goal for No Place Like Home is to release this Friday. And if successful, that'll be the third release in a row to be pretty much on target. Um... Before I get into the fan fiction reading, I just want to let you know I'm at Nitrum on Twitter and youtube.com slash passionofthenerd. You can also shoot me an email with questions, comments about the podcast, or anything, really, at thepassionofthenerd at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the channel and keep me flush with March 1st wine boxes. You can do so at patreon.com slash passionofthenerd or by grabbing yourself something at passionofthenerd.com slash store. There's a suggested reading list on uh, the store website. And we just added the um, TPN Angel Guide mugs that you see in the opening of every Angel episode guide, which I'm very happy about. All right. Here is Gone uh, by Terry Boda. Side note, uh, I was talking to Lonnie about this fanfic project. She, she said she's been uh, enjoying uh, hearing about Spike. And I ended up telling her that I have not pre... She asked me if I had pre-vetted this. And, well, no. I hadn't... I have, I've, I've not pre-vetted this. And this is... 40... <laughs> 
Here is gone is 47 chapters long. We may uh, do some double up uh, chapters here and then. But um, yeah, if this goes south, I feel like once we get past chapter 10, we're in it, man. If Jason Voorhees shows up and teams up with Spike in chapter 20, we're going all the way. So brace yourself because we're not going back from here. All right. We are on Here is Gone. So previously, um, a reinsold Spike had returned to the past to try and make things better for Buffy. Um, and we're finding out about that as we go. All right. Let me hold on one second. Let me get this better organized. Uh, there's a link to uh, the story in the description or in the show notes if you care to read ahead. But why would you want to read ahead? I didn't even read ahead. <laughs> I want to be surprised with you as we go. All right, here we go. Here is Gone by Terry Boda, Chapter 5. Spike waited and watched. He knew that Buffy was going to have her first run-in with Glory very soon, and he was torn. He didn't know if he should help Buffy or stay behind to watch Joyce and Dawn. He finally came to the conclusion that Glory wasn't going to hurt Buffy and that Buffy would get vital information about Dawn if he let things be. Decision made, he went to the Summers' house, hoping to get a better idea of where he was in the timeline. He knew Joyce was home from the hospital and that Buffy was very worried about her. Maybe it was time to do a little more pushing. When he got to the house, he heard Dawn's yell and almost went tearing through the front door. Then he heard Buffy warn Dawn to stay away from her mother and remembered what Dawn had told him about Buffy's reaction to the unveiling spell. So instead of running to the rescue, he stopped and waited by the tree, smoking a cigarette. A few moments later, Buffy came out. This is very apropos, uh, given this week's episode guide. Slayer, he called, catching her attention. She stopped and looked at him, surprised that he was there. Then her mouth hardened a little into a thin line. What are you doing here, Spike? He put out his cigarette, crushing the butt under his boot. Heard your mum was out of the hospital, came to see how she was doing. The line softened a bit, and Buffy seemed to deflate. She's better. She went out. Glad to hear it. Did they do one of them cat scans? Buffy shook her head. Not yet. They're waiting for more test results to come back. He scowled. Not good enough, Slayer. You take her back, and you make him do one. Oh, like I just drag her back there and beat an orderly until she agrees to do one, she snapped. He shrugged. Might work. She sighed and rolled her eyes. Look, Spike... Thanks for coming by, but I, I don't have time for this. I've got to go. I'll tell Mom you were asking about her. Thanks. Right then. Off you go. They moved to go their separate ways when he looked up and saw Dawn in the window. She looked stricken and heart, and his heart clenched. Poor little bit. Hey, Slayer, he called, making her turn around. Be careful. Lots of nasties out there. Be on your guard. Her brow creased at his warning, and he paused, trying not to look guilty. But then she straightened and put on her defiant face. I can handle myself. Good night, Spike. He couldn't help but smile, watching her walk away, head high. This was a Buffy untouched by grief. Strong and powerful. This was the Buffy he had wanted to die for. He waited until she was out of sight before turning back to the house and going in. He found Dawn pouring herself a glass of juice in the kitchen. Hello, bite-sized, he greeted. Dawn shrieked and dropped the glass. It shattered all over the floor. Oh, now look at the mess you've made, he tisked disapprovingly. What are you doing here? Buffy is so going to kick your ass when she finds out you came in, Dawn snapped, backing against the counter as he moved past her to get the mop and broom. Now, now, no need to get testy, bite-sized. I just came here to see your mum. He handed her the broom and dustpan so she could sweep up the broken glass. She accepted them warily. Mom's not here. She went out. I'll just wait for her then. Dawn swept up the glass and went to empty the dustpan into the trash. I don't think that's a good idea. Spike puffed out his chest and smirked. His thumbs hooking into the waistband of his jeans. Scared of the big bad, are you? 
Don scoffed. Oh, like, really? I know you about your chip, Spike. He deflated for a bit, and she gave him a smug smile as she took the mop from him and started cleaning up the spilled juice. So, you know about my little plastic problem, do you? He whispered, leaning into her ear and causing her to jump. Her teenage hand slapped him on the chest, pushing him away. He barely felt it. Get away from me, she yelled, dropping the mop and skittering across the kitchen floor. He gave her a grin and snagged a potato chip from an open bag. So what you got to eat in this place, bite size, besides you? Dawn huffed and opened the snack cabinet. Five minutes later, they were both sitting at the counter drinking coke and drinking cocoa and nibbling on junk food. Mmm, ho-hos. I tell you, the bloke that came up with these things, bloody brilliant he was. Spike sighed, popping one into his mouth. Dawn giggled and he shot her an irritated face. What? he said defensively. You're just so different from the other vampires I've met. I mean, you eat food and you're not all evil and scary. Hey, I am too evil and scary. You take that back, he demanded, standing up. His indignant look only made her laugh more, and inwardly her laughter warmed him. This was a Dawn who had never lost her mum, her sister, or ever suffered. But still he had an image to preserve. No, she refused, still smiling. You take it back or I'll... I'll... She crossed his arms and waited. Or you'll what? He growled and hunched back on the stool, pretending to sulk. She giggled again, and he had a truly evil thought. One even the soul wanted to follow through with. Or I'll smash a Barbie dream house into plastic bits, he threatened, a gleam in his eye. Dawn registered her shock clearly on her face. You wouldn't dare. Then her expression hardened. Hey, how'd you know I had a Barbie dream house? Whoops. Busted. Quick, think fast. Doesn't every red-blooded American girl have one? Don't they give, like, parents a gift certificate for one at birth? He hedged. He didn't want her to know that he hadn't that he had seen it through the bedroom one day during the long summer of Buffy's death. The scowl was back, and he knew he had deflected any more prying questions. Don't you touch my dream house. He was about to retort something back when the front door opened and they heard Joyce calling for her daughters. A moment later, she entered the kitchen. Oh, hello, Spike, Joyce said, surprised to see him. Hello, Joyce, he greeted, vacating a school and his stool and ushering her to sit. Mom, you're back really early. Joyce let out a heavy sigh and sat down. I know. I called off my big night out on account of feeling crappy. Joyce, Spike was already moving about the kitchen, setting the kettle on the stove and pulling out tea. If either Joyce or Dawn wondered how he knew where everything was, they, they didn't say. So to what do we owe this pleasure? Joyce asked as he set the teacup and bag on the counter along with the sugar. Just stopped by to see how you were doing, he answered. Joyce sighed. Crappy. I was feeling better earlier, but now... Want more of your pills? Want more of your pills? Dawn asked, hopefully. Joyce put a hand on her head and winced. That might be a good idea, honey. They're upstairs. Would you get, would you get them? Dawn hurried out as Spike took a good look at the ailing woman. You're feeling poorly, Joyce. You should be back at the hospital. Get more tests. Get a CAT scan. I'll be fine as soon as I can take more pills. It's no good, Joyce. You shouldn't be in this much pain. He placed both hands on the counter and looked at her, silently forcing her to look at him. Understanding passed between them as adult met adult, and Joyce's facade faded. I have to take care of them. They can't be worried about me. Buffy can't be worried about me, she said softly letting the fear seep into her eyes for him to see. He nodded, then patted her hand as the tea kettle went off. You'll be all right, Mum. I promise. She gave him a grateful smile and nod as he poured the water into her cup. Thank you, she said, and he knew it wasn't just for the tea. But Dawn had just returned with Joyce's medication, so he couldn't comment further. It's no problem. Call it payback for the cocoa. Here, Mom, Dawn said, handing her mother the bottle of pills. Joyce kissed her daughter's hair. Thank you, sweetie. Spike picked up the cup of tea and motioned towards the door. Why don't you go sit down on the couch, Mom? It's more comfortable in there. Joyce reluctantly agreed and let herself be guided to the living room. 
Dawn helped her get comfortable by arranging the pillows for her while Spike placed her teacup on the cocktail table. Then he sat back and watched the two interact, Dawn fluttering about her mother like a fledgling bird. Contentment seeped into him as he watched them, and he wondered briefly if his body had really died in that African cave, and this was now his afterlife. If it was, he wasn't sure if it was heaven or hell. So far, while not all the harps and fl- well, so far while not all harps and flowers, he couldn't say it wasn't nice. It certainly wasn't hell. Of that he was certain, unless, unless he couldn't change the outcome, and was forced to lose Joyce and Buffy all over again, doomed to constantly try to find the way to save them, but never succeeding. Like Sisyphus in Hades, that would truly be hell. And it would show that Satan has a bloody, twisted sense of humor. He was dwelling on his thoughts when Buffy arrived home. She looked sore and tired, but the sight of her still warmed him and he couldn't suppress a smile. Both he and Dawn stood as she came in, Dawn to snark at her sister before running upstairs and him to greet her. She's feeling a bit poorly, Slayer, he whispered when she looked askance at him. Gave her some pills and tea, but she needs to go back to the hospital. She needs that CAT scan. Buffy looked at him, her eyes worried and tired, and nodded. He gave her a reassuring smile, then turned to Joyce. I'll be off, Mum. You feel better now, all right? I'll come by to check on you in a day or so. Joyce gave him a tired smile. Thank you, Spike. He smiled back, nodded to Buffy, and left. He wasn't needed, and he could tell from Buffy's posture that she was hiding bruises. That meant she probably had had her first meet-and-greet with Glory, and found out that Dawn was the key. He had to get back to his crypt and plan his next move. (laughs) Ah, that one had some fun stuff! And I'm trying to make connections in my head where uh, they're going with this. Boy, I'm really enjoying this, Um, and I hope you are, too. All right, friends, that's all I have for you this week. Um, A Ron and Buffy script are calling, and the sun looks... sun's getting real low. Now, I just wanted to end with, look, if you're doing New Year's resolutions along with me, and you've hit a wall and are feeling like it's same old, same old, carrying your old albatross or your Mr. Stickler around your neck, please give yourself a break. We give so much real estate in our minds and hearts to people who just don't deserve it. Claim it back for yourself. It's just a story. Those people aren't standing here putting that past in our future. We are. So stop it. And I'll see you on Monday.